Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. The title is The Resurrection Credible. The Resurrection Credible. His text is, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? That's in Acts 26, verse 8. Concerning the souls of our believing friends who have departed this life, we suffer no distress. We feel sure that they are where Jesus is, and behold his glory, according to our Lord's own memorable prayer. We know but very little of the disembodied state, but we know quite enough to rest certain beyond all doubt that, uh, as the poet said, they are supremely blessed, have done with sin and care and woe, and with their Savior rest. Our main trouble is about their bodies which we have committed to the dark and lonesome grave. We cannot reconcile ourselves to the fact that their dear faces are being stripped of all their beauty by the fingers of decay, and that all the insignia of their manhood should be fading into corruption. It seems hard that the hands and feet and all the goodly fabric of their noble forms should be dissolved into dust and broken into an utter ruin. We cannot stand at the grave without tears. <clears throat> Even the perfect man could not restrain his weeping at Lazarus' tomb. It is a sorrowful thought that our friends are dead, <clears throat> nor can we ever regard the grave with love. We cannot say that we take pleasure in the catacomb and the vault. We still regret and feel it natural to do so that so dreadful a ban has fallen upon our race as that it should be appointed unto all men once to die. God sent it as a penalty, and we cannot rejoice in it. The glorious doctrine of the resurrection is intended to take away this cause of sorrow. We need have no trouble about the body any more than we have concerning the soul. Faith being exercised upon immortality relieves us of all trembling as to the spirits of the just. And the same faith, if exercised upon resurrection, will with equal certainty efface all hopeless grief with regard to the body. For though apparently destroyed, the body will live again. It has not gone to annihilation. That very frame which we lay in the dust shall but sleep there for a while, and at the trump of the archangel it shall awaken in superior beauty, clothed with attributes unknown to it while here. The Lord's love to his people is a love towards their entire manhood. He chose them not as disembodied spirits, but as men and women arrayed in flesh and blood. The love of Jesus Christ towards his chosen is not an affection for their better nature merely, but towards that also which we are wont to think their inferior part. For in his book all their members were written, he keepeth all their bones, the very hairs of their head are all numbered. Did he not assume our perfect manhood? He took into union with his deity a human soul, but he also assumed a human body. And in that fact he gave us evidence of his affinity to our perfect manhood, to our flesh to our blood, as well as to our mind and to our spirit. Moreover, our Redeemer has perfectly ransomed both soul and body. It was not 
partial redemption which our kinsmen effected for us, we know that our Redeemer liveth, not only with respect to our spirit, but with regard to our body, so that though the worm shall devour its skin and flesh, yet shall it rise again, because he has redeemed it from the power of death and ransomed it from the prison of the grave. It is a joy to think that as Christ has redeemed the entire man and sanctified the entire man and will be honored in the salvation of the entire man, so our complete manhood shall have in it its power to glorify him. The hands with which we sinned shall be lifted in eternal adoration. The eyes which have gazed on evil shall behold the king in his beauty. Not merely shall the mind which now loves the Lord be perpetually knit to him, and the spirit which contemplates him will delight forever in him and be in communion with him. But this very body, which has been a clog and hindrance to the spirit and been an arch rebel against the sovereignty of Christ, shall yield him homage with voice and hand and brain and ear and eye. We look to the time of resurrection for the accomplishment of our adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. Now, this being our hope, though we believe and rejoice in it in a measure, we have nevertheless to confess that sometimes questions suggest themselves, and the evil heart of unbelief cries, Can it be true? Is it possible? At such times, the question of our text is exceedingly sinful. Uh, the text that I read, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Well, this morning I shall first ask you, dear brethren, to look the difficulty in the face, and then, secondly, we will endeavor to remove the difficulty. There's but, but one way of doing this, and that a very simple one. And then, thirdly, we shall have a word or two to say about our relation to this truth. Well, first, then, let us look this difficulty in the face. We shall not for a moment flinch from the boldest and most plain assertion of our belief in the resurrection, but will let its difficulties appear upon the surface. Attempts have been made at different times by misguided Christians to tone down or explain away the doctrine of the resurrection and kindred truths in order to make them more acceptable to skeptical or philosophical minds. But this has never succeeded. No man has ever been convinced of a truth by discovering that those who profess to believe it are half ashamed of it and adopt the tone of apology. How can a man be convinced by one who does not himself believe, for that in plain English is what it comes to, when we modify, qualify, and attenuate our doctrinal statements, we make concessions which will never be reciprocated and are only received as admissions that we do not believe ourselves what we assert. By this cutting and trimming policy, we shear away the locks of our strength and break our own arm. Nothing of that kind affects me, either now or any time. We do then really in very truth believe that the very body which is put into the grave will rise again. And we mean this literally, and as we utter it, 
We are not using the language of metaphor or talking of a myth. We believe that in actual fact, the bodies of the dead will rise again from the tomb. We admit, and we rejoice in the fact, that there will be a great change in the body of the righteous man, that its materialism will have lost all the grossness and tendency to corruption which now surrounds it, that it will be adapted for higher purposes. For whereas it is now only a tenement fit for the soul or the lower intellectual faculties, it will then be adapted for the spirit or the higher part of our nature. We rejoice that though sown in weakness, it will be raised in glory. But we nevertheless know that it will be the same body. The self-same body which is put into the grave shall rise again. There shall be an absolute identity between the body in which we die and the body in which we rise again from the dust. But let it be remembered that identity is not the same thing as absolute sameness or substance and continuance of atoms. We do not mention this qualification at all by way of taking off the edge from our statement, but simply because it is true. We are conscious, as a matter of fact, that we are living in the same bodies which we possessed 20 years ago. Yet we are told, and we have no reason to doubt it, that perhaps not one single particle of the matter which constitutes our body now was in it 20 years ago. The changes our physical forms have undergone from infancy to manhood are very great. Yet have we the same bodies. Admit the like identity in the resurrection, and it is all we ask. The body in which we die will be the same body in which we were born. Everybody admits that, though it is certainly not the same as in all its particles. Nay, every particle may have been exchanged, and yet it will remain the same. So the body in which we rise will be the same body in which we die, It will be greatly changed, but those changes will not be such as to affect its identity. Now, this hope is naturally surrounded with many difficulties, because first of all, in the great mass of the dead, decay has taken place. The large majority of dead bodies have rotted and been utterly dissolved, and the larger proportion of all other bodies will probably follow them. When we see bodies that have been petrified, or mummies which have been embalmed, we think that if all bodies were preserved in that way, it were easier to believe in their restoration to life. But when we break open some ancient sarcophagus and find nothing there but a little impalpable brown powder, when we open a grave in the churchyard and find only a few crumbled pieces of bone, And when we think of ancient battlefields where thousands have fallen, where notwithstanding through the lapse of years, there remains not a trace of man, since the bones have so completely melted back into earth, and in some cases have been sucked up by the roots and plants, and have passed into other organizations, well then it certainly does seem a thing incredible that the dead should be raised. The wonder increases when we remember in what strange places many of these bodies now may be, for the bodies of some have been left in deep mines where they will never be reached again. 
They've been carried by the wash and swell of tides into deep caverns of the ancient main, and there they lie, far away on the pathless desert where only the vulture's eye can see them, or buried beneath mountains of fallen rock. In fact, where are not man's remains? Who shall point out a spot of earth where the crumbling dust of Adam's sons is not? Blows there a single summer wind down our streets without whirling along particles of what once was man? Is there a single wave that breaks upon any shore which holds not in solution some relic of what was once human? They lie beneath each tree. They enrich the fields. They pollute the brooks. They hide beneath the meadow grass. Yet surely from anywhere, from everywhere, the scattered bodies shall return, like Israel from captivity. As certainly as God is God, our dead men shall live and stand upon their feet, an exceedingly great army, as in Ezekiel. And moreover, to make the wonder extraordinary beyond conception, they will rise at once, or perhaps in two great divisions. There is a passage, Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6, which apparently teaches us that between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked, there will be an interval of a thousand years. Many think that the passage intends a, a spiritual resurrection, but I am unable to think so. Assuredly, the words must have a literal meaning. Hear them, judge for yourself. It says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Yet, granted that there may be this great interval, yet what a mass will be seen when the righteous rise, a multitude that no man can number, an inconceivable company only known to God's enumeration shall suddenly start up from beds of dust and silent clay. The break of a thousand years shall be as nothing in the sight of God and shall soon be over and, and then shall rise the unjust also. What teeming multitudes! Where shall they stand? What plains of earth shall hold them? Shall they not cover all the solid earth, even to the mountain tops? Shall they not need to use the sea itself as a level floor for God's great assize? And before God in a moment shall they stand when the trump of the archangel shall ring out clear and shrill the summons for the last assize? May I add, this is Bob speaking, not Charles Spurgeon, that right before that standing of all those dead before the the great white throne. A comment is made in that same book of Revelation, chapter 20, that earth has fled away. They are not standing anywhere on the earth. They're in, in a place we don't know, standing before God to be judged. Continuing with Charles Spurgeon, and then bethink you that this resurrection will not be a mere restoration of what was there, but the resurrection in the case of the saints will involve a remarkable advance upon anything we now observe. 
we put into the ground a bulb, and it rises as a golden lily. We drop into the mold a seed, and it comes forth an exquisite flower, resplendent with brilliant colors. These are the same which we put into the earth, the same identically, but oh, how different. Even thus the bodies, which are sown in burial, are like so many seeds. They shall spring up by divine power into outgrowths surpassing all imagination in beauty. This increases the wonder, for the Lord Jesus not only snatches the prey from between the teeth of the destroyer, but that which has become worms, meat, and ashes, and dust, he raises in his own sacred image. It is as though a tattered and moth-eaten garment were rent to shreds, and then by a divine word restored to its perfectness, and in addition made whiter than any fuller on earth could make it, and adorned with costly fringes and embroideries unknown to it before, and all this in a moment of time. Let it stand as a world of wonders, marvelous beyond all things. We will not for a moment attempt to explain it away or pare down the angles of the truth. One of the difficulties of believing it is this, that that there are positively no full analogies in nature by which to support it. There are phenomena around us, someone like, somewhat like it, so that we can compare, but I believe that there is no analogy in nature upon which it would be at all fair to found an argument. For instance, uh, some have said that sleep is the analogy of death, and that our awakening is a sort of resurrection. The figure is admirable, but the analogy is very far from perfect, since in sleep there is still life. A continuance of life is manifest to the man himself in his dreams, and to all onlookers who choose to watch the sleeper, to hear him breathe or to watch his heart beat. But in death, the body has no pulses or other signs of life left in it. It does not even remain entire as the body of the sleeper does. Imagine that the slumberer should be torn limb from limb, pounded into a mortar reduced to powder, and that powder mixed up with clay and mold, and then see him awaken at your call. And then you would have something worth calling an analogy, but a mere sleep from which a man is startled, while it is an excellent comparison, is far enough from being the counterpart or or prophecy of resurrection. Uh, more frequently, we here mentioned the development of insects as a striking analogy. The larva is man in his present condition. The chrysalis is a, a type of man in his death. And the imago, or, or perfect insect, is the representation of man in his, in his resurrection. An admirable simile, certainly, but but no more, for there is there is life in the chrysalis. There is organization. There is, in fact, the entire fly. <laughs> no observer can mistake the chrysalis for a dead thing. Take it up and you shall find everything in it that will come out of it. The perfect creature is evidently dormant there. If you could crush the chrysalis, dry up all its life juices, bruise it into dust, pass it through chemical processes, utterly dissolve it, and then afterwards call it back into a butterfly, 
you would have seen an analogy of the resurrection, but this is uh, unknown to nature as yet. I find no fault with the picture. It's most instructive and interesting, but to argue from it would be childish to the last degree. Uh, nor is the analogy of the seed much more conclusive. The seed, when put into the ground, dies, and yet rises again in due season. Hence the apostle uses it as the apt type and emblem of death. He tells us that the seed is not quickened unless it die. What is death? Death is the resolution of an organization into its original particles, and, and so the seed begins to separate into its elements, to fall back from the organization of life into the inorganic state. But still a life germ always remains, and the crumbling organization becomes its food from which it builds itself up again. Is it so with dead bodies, of which not even a trace remains? Who shall discover a life germ in the putrid corpse? I shall not say there, there may not be some essential nucleus which better instructed beings might perceive, but I would demand where in the corrupted body it can be supposed to dwell. Is it in the brain? The brain is among the first things to disappear. The skull is empty and void. Is it in the heart? That also has a very brief duration, far briefer than the bones. Nowhere could a microscope discover any vital principle in bodies disinterred from the sod. Turn up the soil wherein the seed is buried at any time you will, and you'll find it where you placed it, if indeed it will ever rise from the ground. But such is not the case with the man who has been buried a few hundred years. Of him the last relic has probably passed beyond all recognition. Well, the generations to come are not more undiscoverable than those which have gone. Think of those who were buried before the flood or drowned in that general deluge, where, I ask, have we the smallest remnant of them? Grind your corn of wheat to fine flour, throw it to the winds, and behold cornfields rising from it, and then you will have a perfect analogy. But as yet I do not think that nature contains a parallel case. The resurrection stands alone. And concerning it, the Lord might well say, Behold, I do a new thing in the earth. With the exception of the resurrection of our Lord and those granted to a, a few persons by miracle, we have nothing in history that can be brought to bear upon the point, nor need we look there for evidence. We have a far surer ground to go upon. Here, then, is the difficulty, and a notable one it is. Can these dry bones live? Is it a credible thing that the dead should be raised? And I have to leave it right there. And we'll finish this message when we get together next time. Thank you so much for being here and listening. Please do look around the site and you'll find many other great preachers. You'll see some of my own teaching there. You'll see persecution stories from North Korea. You'll see uh, a blog that's there. I haven't been looking at it lately or, or working on it lately, but there's many things if you go backwards in it that I think might bless you. 
If you want more fellowship, just consider visiting the YouTube channel known as Pastorlands, or check out one of the books that I've written at Amazon.com. Contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com, and I'll share details about our Zoom meetings and send you a link if you're interested in joining us. Anyway, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on July 19, 2022. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.